Where do you go to find God? Where do you reckon you can experience God, see what he's like? Maybe you reckon it's getting into nature, climbing to the top of a mountain, seeing the view and feeling very small. Maybe you go to find God in quiet and stillness, which is so hard to find. Maybe you think God is found in ancient rituals. Many people who don't think themselves as particularly religious say they find something spiritual about temples, cathedrals or monasteries. Today is Good Friday, the day we remember, we focus on, we reflect on the death of Jesus. One of the astounding claims of Christianity, the astounding claims of the Bible is that in the darkness and forsakenness of that Friday, the Bible says this is where we meet God. We're picking things up around midday on that Friday. Last week we looked at the first half of Mark 15, and if you weren't here, please read it uh, this afternoon. It would be a great thing to continue reflecting on. Uh, Mark tells us what happened during the first half of that day. The morning when Jesus was brought before the governor who cared more for power than justice. Jesus is then mocked by soldiers, by religious leaders, by everyone. But as they mocked, they spoke truer words than they realised. But at midday, as the sun is high in the sky, nothing more is said. Darkness descends. The words that Mark recorded are are written in your bulletin. So have a look there at the top, uh, the top on the inside. Uh, The first sentence says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. We're not told how this occurred, how the darkness happened, but it's not normal. Clearly an occurrence deep with meaning. But what does it mean? 700 or so years prior to this day, a messenger from God spoke about this day, a day when even light would fail. Uh, This is what the prophet Isaiah says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and the constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. What does Isaiah say this dark day means? He calls it the day of God, the day of the Lord. The day when the world will meet its maker. The day when God comes in anger and judgment against evil and injustice. Uh, this talk of fierce, this talk of wrath and fierce anger uh, can be troubling. It's not the kind of thing we want to hear. Doesn't the Bible say God is love, that he's the God of comfort? Surely we've gone beyond needing to believe in a God with wrath or anger. Isn't it just a scary story we're told to control us? 
Except we haven't, have we? You look at the things going on in the world, not just war, but war crimes, abuse and oppression. And maybe for you, you don't need to look out into the world. This is your story. You or someone you care deeply for has been greatly wronged. When we see this, when we or someone we love goes through things like this, we cry out for justice. We want someone, anyone, even God, to come with wrath and anger against evil. Isaiah says the sky turning dark means justice will be done. God has come in wrath and anger But the question is, who's at the receiving end? On that Friday, where is God's wrath directed? Maybe it's directed at those who've mocked and tortured Jesus. Maybe it's at the soldiers or the religious leaders. For three hours, there is darkness. But then there is a cry from the cross that tells us where God's wrath is directed. Have a look at the next sentence. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For six hours, Jesus has been hanging on a cross, Darkness has fallen for the last three. And in all that time, Jesus has barely uttered a word. And now he cries out. Mark records that Jesus speaks in Aramaic, his heart language, the language Mary and Joseph would have spoken to him since he was laid in a manger. This is a cry from the heart. And the words he says are ancient words, words written by the greatest of Israel's kings, words that express deep suffering and anguish. They're the words from the beginning of Psalm 22, which Malcolm read earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many people have read these words and heard them on Jesus' lips and have struggled with them. How could Jesus say such a thing? Could they be true? Could Jesus be forsaken by the one he calls Father? As we were reading Psalm 22 this morning, it's gut-wrenching stuff, isn't it? It is horrific. You can hear why it's a fitting Psalm for the cross. David wrote those words because he experienced something of it. Jesus says these words because they are fitting for him, mocked and despised, treated as less than human. I'm a worm, not a man. Exhausted and worn down. Yet it's a psalm that ends with hope. And we're going to read the rest of it on Easter Sunday. And because it's a psalm that both goes down to the depths but then rises in hope and joy, some people have concluded, well, Jesus isn't really God forsaken. 
that by quoting the first words of the psalm, he's really thinking about the whole psalm and, and he's actually really thinking about the end of the psalm. That on the cross, Jesus is crying out in joy and hope. And it appears at least some of the crowd around Jesus that day think that that might be what's going on. They think he's crying out for Elijah to rescue him. Uh, This is what it says. uh, When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it up to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him down, he said. Some people have thought the reason this person thinks Jesus is calling for Elijah is maybe they mishear the words, Eloi, Eloi, the Aramaic for my God, my God, but they could sound a little bit like the name Elijah. I don't think that's what's going on. Those who thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah heard him properly. They heard these words from Psalm 22. They recognised them. And there seems to have been a popular Jewish belief that God would send the prophet Elijah, uh, a prophet who himself had not died but was taken directly into the presence of God in a gust of wind. Some Jews believed God would send Elijah to help when his people were in need. And so maybe the offering of sour wine is an attempt to prolong Jesus' life, that he might live long enough for Elijah to come and rescue Though I reckon this is further mockery of Jesus. God's not going to send Elijah to this humiliated failure. As if the sour wine is an insult. In another psalm it says, They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Uh, Sour wine and wine vinegar, it's the same thing. It's the same word in the original language. It goes along with poison. This is not something you give to give someone hope. I don't think this vinegar offering bloke, I don't think he's hearing Jesus cry as a cry of victory. At best, it's a desperate cry for help, which he thinks will go unheard. Uh, This cry from the cross is not a cry of hope. Or victory? Jesus doesn't cry, why have you forsaken me? Because he's feeling deep comfort. When we put the darkness and the cry together, we see Jesus is bearing the wrath of God. Where is God's wrath directed on that Friday? It's at the one on the cross. Jesus is experiencing true God-forsakenness. Not because he deserves it. As you read the accounts of Jesus' life, one thing is clear. He does not deserve the coming of the anger and wrath of God, to use Isaiah's language. So how could Jesus experience forsakenness on the cross? One of the surprising things Jesus said about himself as people were starting to see him as a king and rescuer, is that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives his life. Jesus dies not to pay his own ransom, but to pay the ransom for many, for others. 
A ransom is the price you pay for someone's freedom. If someone's been kidnapped, if someone's been enslaved, a ransom is the price you pay for their freedom. You might extend the picture to something like posting bail. Posting bail is a little bit like a ransom. It's the money paid to buy someone's freedom from jail, from punishment. The darkness that fell wasn't normal. It was an occurrence with deep meaning showing God's anger and wrath at sin, yet directed not at those who had mocked and crucified Jesus, but directed at at Jesus. Another part of the Bible explains it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus is the one who had no sin. He always lived rightly before God, yet on the cross, as darkness falls, he was made sin. And in his death, he paid the ransom, the price required for our sin. On the cross, Jesus becomes sin, bears sin, and receives the wrath and fierce anger of God. As Mark records it, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus dies. He is made sin and gives his life as a ransom for many. And at that moment, as sin is dealt with in the death of Christ, the temple is finished. If you look at the passage again, it says, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Like the darkness, this isn't normal. This is an act of God. Uh, One of Jesus' disciples didn't go in and and cut the curtain or or pull it down. It was torn top to bottom. Uh, In the Jerusalem temple, uh, it's called Herod's temple because he had paid uh, the the money to, to have this temple built. In the Jerusalem temple, there were two curtains. Uh, One separating the courtyard from the holy place, the other one separating the holy place from the most holy place. Either way, both of them used to ensure the holiness of the temple. They were barriers between the people and God. And we're not told which of these two curtains was torn and it doesn't matter much. The significance is the same. This is the end of the temple. Judgment on the temple and everything it had come to stand for. A few days earlier, Jesus had been in this temple, standing there, talking with the people. Uh, The Jewish leaders were trying to trap him in his words. And Jesus told a story. A story about a farmer who leased some land to tenants. And when it was time to pay the rent, the tenants killed one servant, the first servant, who came to collect the rent. And they killed the next one, and the next one, and the next. And finally, in this story, the landowner sends his son, saying, they will respect my son. But they have no respect, so they kill the son of the owner. When Jesus told that story, the religious leaders got it. The leaders of the temple got it. They got that it was about them. And on that Friday, they lived out the story. The final nail in the corruption of what the temple had become 
And so as Jesus dies, the curtain is torn. No longer is the temple the place you go to find God. No longer the place where sacrifices are made for sin. No longer the place you go to pray and meet with God. The tearing of the curtain is judgment on what the temple had become. It's the end of the temple. But without a temple... And with Jesus crying out that he is forsaken and with the darkness of God's anger and wrath falling, where can God be found? Well, God is found in a most surprising place and recognised by an unexpected person. Mark tells us in that paragraph, just above halfway on the page, it starts talking about the curtain and then it says... And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is not the person you'd expect to say this. The centurion was the soldier overseeing the crucifixions that day, giving orders to the soldiers who hammered the nails. A Roman a pagan, to Jewish minds, the enemy. Not the one you'd expect to confess that the person he'd just killed is the Son of God. Mark goes on to tell us there were others there as Jesus died. Some women who'd given everything for years in the service of Jesus. And they're there but at a distance silenced by grief and shock. There's also Joseph of Arimathea, who, as far as we know, was silent as justice was thrown aside, silent as Jesus was falsely accused and condemned by the religious council. It seems he was at least sympathetic towards Jesus, uh, didn't believe he deserved the shame of a criminal's death and the humiliation of having his body thrown into a mass grave. And so he approaches Pilate and he's given permission to hastily bury Jesus in a respectful tomb. But it's not the faithful women and it's not the sympathetic leader. It's the Roman centurion who sees divinity in the crucified one. You might be wondering what exactly he means by this, calling a dead man the son of God. At this time, the Roman emperors called themselves son of God. But this barely helps us because how could the man hanging there, stripped of all dignity, forsaken by God, how could you say he is like the glorious and powerful Caesar? What does this man mean? Like so many people in these final hours of Jesus' life, like Pilate, uh, the soldiers, the people, the priests, I wonder whether this centurion spoke more than he realised. Surely this is the Son of God. Uh, Mark gives a title for his biography of Jesus. Uh, This is the title he says, The Beginning of the Good News About Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how Mark's gospel begins. 
He records the events of Jesus' ministry to show us that Jesus is Messiah, the King, and Son of God. And from an unlikely mouth, this is the moment he's finally recognised. In the life of Jesus, when is he most clearly divine? Where do you find God? Is it when he's stopping the wind and the waves? When he casts out a legion of demons, when he gives sight to the blind? Well, of course, all of these point to Jesus. All of these reveal Jesus is God. But Mark's clear point is it's at this moment, as darkness descends, as Jesus cries out as he dies, this is where we find God. As the temple of the curtain is torn, sorry, the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Yes, it's judgment on the temple, but it also opens up access to God. Good Friday is where we meet God. The cross is not out of character for God. This isn't a mistake. There's no other God we find behind the cross, one who will send Elijah and a company of angels to remove Jesus from this suffering and humiliation. The cross is where we find God, where we meet him. Because at his heart, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus gives his life as a ransom. In his death, Jesus pays the price required to set us free from sin, to give us free access to God, not through a temple or religion, but directly through Jesus. Jesus, who is At the same time, God forsaken and Son of God, in Christ, God enters his own wrath in order to save his people. We heard it in that sentence from another part of the Bible. On the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. Jesus is made our sin and we become his righteousness. The centurion's words are a challenge for us today. Will you look to Christ crucified and there see God? Will you receive The exchange, trusting in his death as your ransom and receive God's righteousness in him. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that on the cross we meet you. As the price is paid for sin, as Jesus is made sin and bears our sin in his body, We praise you that he did this for us and for our salvation. We praise you that because of the ransom of Jesus, anyone who trusts in him can be forgiven and free. 
please help us believe this today. To say with the centurion that Jesus is the Son of God and to know your love and mercy in him. Amen.